Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant. So good to see you. What a powerful moment of worship we've already experienced thus far this morning. Amen. I love being here, especially around the holidays. My name is Joel, by the way, if you're a guest with us. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me just uh, invite you to grab one of these blue cards in the seat back in front of you. Uh, If you're a techie and you'd rather do this on your phone, you can go to covenantexperience.com and just click sign up or just like connect. There's a connect button there. Uh, But you can also fill out one of these. Uh, I promise we're not going to try to say anything. This is just the best way for us to keep contact with you, to be able to reach out, to minister to you in any possible way. We would like to get to know you and just know that you were here today. So if you could fill that out at the end of the service, our church family is going to worship through giving. And at the nine o'clock service, we pass a plate for that. Just drop that blue card in that plate. I want you to turn with me to Matthew's gospel, the very first book in the New Testament. Your Bible's divided into old and new. Very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11. We've been in a series for several weeks. It's kind of an off again, on again thing. We took a break for a couple of weeks for the Thanksgiving holidays and to to have a special guest last week. But but this series, we've got two weeks left in. It's going to take us right up to the Christmas holidays, and it's entitled A Non-Anxious presence. And we've been learning uh, a couple of things, that, that anxiety is not merely a liability, that there is a way not only to live non-anxiously, but even when we do feel anxiety, that we can leverage that for the greater glory of God. So that's the first lesson we want to learn from this series. The second one is that we can be a non-anxious presence to the environment that we now live in. So whether we're talking about Shepherdstown or, or Spring Mills or, or Charlestown or somewhere in Maryland, wherever you came from today, that you can actually, by the way you live, embodying the principles that we're learning in this series, you can be the kind of non-anxious presence that will allow the rest of the environment surrounding you to see you as an oasis. And in fact, that is God's good intention for you. But if you've been with us for the first couple of weeks in this series, you probably, if, if you're dealing with anxiety right now, and more particularly if there, if there are external forces driving that anxiety, it, you probably haven't left very encouraged. Because the first couple of weeks, we spent telling you where not to look to find relief from that. Right? Oftentimes what will cause anxiety is not some internal thing, although that certainly does happen. And we, we thank God for the common grace that we can experience through mental health professionals and, and other kinds of things. Oftentimes we let ourselves get spun up because of allowing external forces to, to be the primary index by which we measure the quality of our life. And so if those things go up or down, they affect our mood, whether it's the amount of money in our wallet or how we're doing professionally or how well-behaved our children are or how well our marriage is doing or, or, or whatever else. And so the last couple of weeks, we've learned that, that those two things are, those, those things are called sanctuaries, temporary sanctuaries. And, and the thing about temporary sanctuaries is they can't be counted on forever and no one grows there. If everything's always good for you, if everything's always great, you're never going to grow. 
It's the reason that I started lifting weights again. It's not because I have some delusion that I'm going to look like Dwayne Johnson. I know that's not possible. Well, maybe when we get to glory. I've been talking to the Lord about maybe my glorified body. Right? But, but, but what is, what's it about? It's about, at, at my age, not letting the physical body that God has given me to atrophy, to keep it healthy. So what has to happen? Sometimes it has to experience some resistance. And sometimes that level of resistance results in, you know, you know where big biceps come from? Torn muscles. They tear, right? And so when I'm going through those kinds of things, I got to remember anxiety is one of those tools that can be leveraged in this way. And sometimes in order to get us from A to B, God will remove those security blankets and he will remind us in places like Isaiah, in places like 2 Corinthians, that, that he's not giving us those security blankets back because we were way too dependent on them. And so you may have left here in recent weeks going, well, I guess I'm just going to have to deal with it. Here's the good news today. There is a place you can look. And, and sometimes the reason God strips away those temporary sanctuaries is so that you will look at this one thing. There's a place where we can go. God doesn't want us relying on those temporary things because he doesn't want us to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. As long as that thing is the primary index of my happiness and fulfillment, then I'm under obligation for the rest of my days to keep that thing propped up, to keep that thing healthy. And so if something happens that's beyond my control and that thing collapses, then, then I collapse. Jesus does not want that for us. And so he, he makes us a promise. In verse 30 of Matthew 11, he says this, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In a world that is filled with anxiety, that's powerful. That's powerful. Some of you need to hear that this holiday season. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here's what we're going to learn today. There's a place we can go to find the calm we need in moments like those that so many of us have experienced recently. But like so many stories of spiritual victory, this one too has a hard background. The context of this story begins in verse 2. Of Matthew 11. We read that when, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, if the shock of those words didn't hit you the way they're supposed to, let me remind you who this is. This is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. This is the big, boisterous, prophetic, don't care who doesn't care kind of guy. He's speaking the truth when nobody else speaks the truth. He's the bold declarer of the identity of the Son of God. This is the forerunner of his cousin who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you remember that background and then you read these words, and he's, he's in a prison cell and he says, Send word to my cousin. I just want to make sure I got this right. You got to wonder what happened, don't you? I mean, what, what happened to this guy to turn him in from this bold, brash person? Well, he is in prison. That's not the nicest place to be. Even in the 21st century, when we have prisoners' rights and all that kind of stuff, I don't think anybody in here wants to spend one minute in ERJ. This is likely worse. And so we don't, we don't realize from this verse alone even how bad the situation is really for another three chapters. When you get to Matthew 14... Man, you see how dark 
John's reality really is. You see a couple of things here. And I want to warn you, there's some R-rated stuff in here, okay? He's there because he told the truth. He's in prison because Herod the king and Herodias are sleeping together. Even though Herodias is not married to Herod, but instead to Herod's brother, Philip. So he's fooling around with his sister-in-law. And, and they're not even trying to hide it. It's open. They're running it up the flagpole. You know, a lot of people, they talk about, they, they talk about cities around the world or here in the United States. Those are just sin cities like Vegas, like New Orleans. You know, every city is a sin city. It's got people in it. The only difference is in places like Orleans and Vegas, they run it up a flagpole. They're proud of it, right? And that, that's what was going on here. And so John confronts that, and he says to the king, you know, I don't care that you're the king. That's nasty. So sometimes, by the way, that's the truth, amen? That's just nasty, and that's perverted, and you are not allowed to do that. And so Herodias, an equally wicked woman, apparently, alongside her brother-in-law that she's sleeping with, decides to have him imprisoned. But she wants more than that. She wants more than that. She wants him killed. And so things are about to go from bad to worse for John. Herodias had a daughter. And this is where it gets really dark. Her name is Salome. Most historians looking at this would say she was at the time in which this, this event occurred somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14. And at the urging of her mother, she dances before Herod. This is basically a bunch of middle-aged, nasty old men in a strip club. That's what this is. And it happens because Herodias is leveraging the desire of her brother-in-law that she, I mean, she already knows the depth of his perversion so that she can have John killed. All right, so an equally perverted woman sleeping with a perverted man leverages her daughter's budding sensuality as a young teenager in order to get the head of John the Baptist. That's how sick and nasty all of this is. And the result of this is eventually John does die, all because he simply said, you may not have your brother's wife. Here, that's nasty. That's wicked. That is not permitted. That is prohibited. And so here we go, right? It's the righteous preacher proclaimed his cousin as Messiah. He's imprisoned. He's about to be killed. He's facing some doubt. I can't judge John too harshly. I got to be honest with you. I can understand. I can sympathize a little bit why he would sit in that prison cell and go, was it all a lie? Was it really? Like, like, did I get this wrong? This is not how I thought this would end. And this is the environment in which we learn a powerful lesson about how to remain calm in the kingdom because the ensuing verses are Jesus' answer to John's question. Jesus doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't get exasperated. He, he just answers the question. They, cousin, they want, your cousin wants to know. He's got some doubts now. He's proclaimed you. Are you the real deal? I mean, he's languishing in prison. He really wants to know if this has really all been worth it. And so Jesus says a couple of things. First of all, he says, remember what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. All right, John, you're not thinking about all stuff you have seen. The only thing you're thinking about right now is everything you're seeing in the present. You need to remember, yeah, I am who I say I am. 
Just tell John to remember everything that he has seen, and he'll know that intuitively. But then he says something powerful, something empowering of this man who's now languishing in prison. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The number of times that I have doubted in my life, the number of times that I have just had wicked, awful thoughts and, and wondered, you know, is it even real? Like in my adult life, here's John the Baptist experiencing the same thing. And Jesus' response is not just to answer his question, but to reassure his other followers and to reassure John, I can handle your doubt in this moment. In fact, I don't even think less of you because of your doubt. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning. Jesus is not exasperated by your doubt. He's not troubled by your doubt. It has not knocked him off his throne, and he does not love you one ounce less as you sit there in difficult circumstances wondering if he's the real deal. You just need to know that. And so all the way through Jesus, through verse 24, then Jesus starts to teach a broader lesson by describing two realities. There's a, there's a lesser one and a greater one. The lesser one is the one John's experiencing. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't go, well, you're, you're not really in prison. He doesn't go prosperity gospel on him. Well, just confess that you're not in prison, right? What foolishness is that? No, he's, there's a lesser reality, and it's real. You're in jail. Things are bad right now. That's true. But the greater one is the one that will prevail. And that's what we see described throughout this chapter. Unrepentant leaders and cities are going to perish. In fact, Jesus says of Herod, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than it was for that man. And then he says things that bring us up to verses 25 and 30, where in these concluding words of a prayer, he's calling his disciples, he's calling his imprisoned cousin, and 2,000 years later, he calls you and me to a hope that brings calm no matter what we are called to endure. So in those moments of personal and even global turmoil, there's a place we can go to find peace and to find calm. And so what, you, what I want you to see here is a threefold description of that calm and how to achieve it. There is an eternal reality to recognize. There is an eternal God you can trust, and there is an eternal Savior to love and who loves you. So let's take those in that order, beginning with there's an, an eternal reality to recognize. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So this, this is the part of the prayer that models a peace that is reinforced by complete dependence upon God's kind providence. The world is full of wickedness. Jesus doesn't doubt that here. He doesn't, he doesn't deny that here. That wickedness, though, we start to see here, is a fallen response. It's the fallen response of most of the human race to their mistaken perception of reality. That's what, where most wickedness comes from. For those of us who follow Jesus, when we do or say or think wicked things, that's often the root of it. It's, a, it's our fallen response 
to a mistaken perception of reality. And the myths that drive the, the wickedness of this world tell us that, well, it's things like you only live once and seize the day and you get all the pleasure and the power and the money you can get your hands on. The ends justify the means as a result, no matter how evil those means are. But in this scenario, it's not the Judean king who gets away with perversion. It is the ridiculed, suffering prisoner about to be executed that Jesus says is the greatest man ever born to a woman. And Jesus' words about John are a sample of the wider witness of Scripture in that reality. It's actually the marginalized who will occupy thrones. And it's the stubborn and the unrepentant, even if they look like winners in this world, who will be brought to the grave and ultimately forgotten. And God has chosen, he says, to hide this reality from those the world deems wise. In other words, people that are actually living under a delusion where their life is dependent, their non-anxious nature, their calmness, their equanimity is all indexed to the level of power or control or pleasure that they receive. Jesus says, there's a greater reality, but there's a group of people that I'm going to reveal that to. He's very select about this, this group of people. And, and this, this reality is revealed, he says, to, to little children. The text actually just in the Greek, it just says littles. That's all it says. Does that sound familiar? Not a term that was familiar to me until I moved here. I've lived in four states, and I don't, maybe, it's, maybe it is the experience of cultures and people in other places, but for me, I never really heard that word as frequently as I did when I got to the panhandle area. And so many of you, especially moms, you talk about my littles, right? In fact, if you ask a West Virginia mother, how many children do you have? She has five children, just for example, and you say to her, you ask her, how many children do you have? She's likely as not, she's not going to say, I have five children. She's going to say, well, we've got our adult daughter and she's in her 20s. And then I've got two teenagers at home. They're like 16 and 13. And then, and then I got my two littles, don't we? Isn't this what we do? Like, it's not, I got five kids. It's, no, it's the stages of life because there's this intuitive understanding that there's a difference between those stages. And there, a little is someone who's vulnerable. A teenager is somebody make their own sandwich, Amen. Right? And so it, it's right. They can take their own bath. If you got a 13 year old walked in here today and, and you, you hit the, you hit, you hit the lobby before you went, Oh dear Lord, son. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're, there's disappointment in that far greater than, than if you got a poopy diaper rock on a, on a, on a six month old, right? Because we, we understand if, if that 13 year old is stinking, it's because they chose not to bathe, not because they couldn't do it. Littles are vulnerable. Littles can't do this stuff for themselves. They're not expected to do it for themselves. The parent does it. Think about that for a minute. It's someone who also just instinctively trusts the parent. Jesus would tell his disciples in Matthew 18 and verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this little is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Conversely, he says, unless you turn and become like littles, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Cousin John, look, man, I know you like acting all big and bad. I know you present as loud and in charge and boisterous and take no prisoners. And I, even, honestly, I mean, cousin, even Herod and Herodias, they wouldn't be doing this stuff to you if they weren't afraid of you. 
if they weren't intimidated by you. I know anytime anybody mentions John, the first thing anybody in the know thinks about is, oh yeah, I know John. That's that loud, large, and in charge, burlap-wearing, bug-eating, stinky cousin of Jesus. That's who that is. But John, you're my little. Big and bad as you try to act, you're my little. And that's where you find your calm. You're my little. You're surrounded by, just realize, hey, I'm surrounded by stuff I can't control. Man, I can't even predict. I can't know these things. And Jesus, essentially through these words, is saying, and you know what? I'm not going to change that. I'm not giving you any more control. (laughs) I'm not doing that. In fact, it's going to get a lot worse. You're going to lose your head eventually. But what I will do as you live in this kingdom, that is very real, this lesser reality is is real, I will give you calm based upon a kingdom that you cannot see. That's a word for you and me today. When we are surrounded by the lesser reality of difficulty and sickness and uncertainty and loss, and and we assume the disposition of a small child who can only look to his or her guardian, it is that moment that God's gracious intention is to expose us to a greater reality. Right? And our, our ancestors in the faith have proven this to us for thousands of years. Right? I, I know this just by living life in, in the, the very small slice of time frame that God's given me to live on this earth. I have seen people with all the money in the world who experience all the pleasure in the world who travel all over the world, who have all the connections and the relationships and the power, and you get underneath their skin a little bit, you get about two or three layers down in that onion, and you find out they're some of the most insecure people on planet Earth. And then if you go down a few more layers, you discover why. It's because every single aspect of their sense of value and their life is indexed to keeping all that stuff. Conversely, I've seen some of the poorest people I've been in the poor parts of West Virginia. I've been in the parts of, of this state where there are actually more blue tarps than there are actual front doors on houses. And I've seen some of the most happy, contented people. You're like, now, are you telling me I need to replace my door with a tarp? Or you, no, your HOA won't appreciate that, okay? What I am telling you is your fulfillment can't be indexed to that. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling John. You stay in prison, cousin, and you learn a lesson here that can set you free. There's an eternal reality here. And you can experience calm when you're in prison. For 2,000 years, Christians have been in prison. They've been persecuted. They have suffered. And they have recognized an eternal reality that has brought them calm. There is an eternal reality to recognize. And and there's a reason for that. It's because there's an eternal God to trust. Verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him to him. So, Theology 101, Christians believe that God is a trinity. We believe that God is three distinct persons, all right? Not, not, not three manifestations. That's one that's Pentecostalism, and that's heresy, okay? Not, not three different modes 
That's Mormonism. Not three distinct persons. They relate to each other like you would relate to your spouse or your children. That each person is fully and completely God and that all of them exist within a singular Godhead, meaning there is one and only one God. That's the Trinity. And you see these, these references to it throughout Scripture this is one of those. It's not a full reference. For example, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit here. But Jesus does give a very colorful, detailed description of the intimate nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And he says here, the Father is sovereign. And he shares sovereign control with the Son. And there's no one more intimately familiar with anyone else than the familiarity we see reflected between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus is saying here, you can trust the God you cannot see because I know him, he knows me, we are one, and you can trust me, and you're looking at me. You can see me. And we have this saying in our culture, the seeing is believing. Or more cynically expressed, I'll believe it when I see it. It's why we value warranties and certificates of insurability and time-stamped emails and all that stuff employment contracts. We, we, we want to see something first and then we're going to believe it. But when it comes to our relationship with God, Jesus just turned that thinking on his head. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. And Jesus is telling us here, the God who controls it all, who sovereignly declares both the, the lesser reality that you're experiencing and the greater reality that you can't comprehend with your senses, he and I are one and I don't just speak for him, I am. You may not be able to see the Father, but you are looking at God. You want to see me? Now, why is that important? We, we joke sometimes. Even, even in pastoral ministry, we joke about the Trinity and the things we don't understand about it and the fact that it seems so abstract sometimes and there's no real-world application, right? I mean, does it really make a difference? None of that's true. The greater eternal reality where we can find kingdom calm is given to us by a Trinitarian God who became flesh, the second person of which became flesh and lived among us. And that means we have something else. It's not just a, a reality to recognize and a God we can trust, but we, we have an eternal Savior to love. I want you to look with, with all of that context given now, look with me beginning at verse 28 at Jesus' powerful words, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So real quick here as we wrap this up, three invitations, very explicit here, two promises, one very personal revelation. All right, let's take those in order. Here are the three invitations. Verse 28, come to me. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Also verse 29, learn from me. That's an imperative command. It's the verbal form of the word disciple. Come be my disciple. Come follow me. We're actually going to start a new series called Surrender in January, and we're going to talk about what does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to be my disciple? Uh, the, the rabbis had a saying, the dust 
of your rabbi is all over you, meaning you walk so closely behind him that whatever sticks to the bottom of his shoe, every time he takes a step, it gets slung back and it falls on you. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do here. Come and be my disciple. Trust me, follow me to such an extent that you take my yoke. Pastor Chris has a yoke in his office. He said, you want, he, he got really excited when I talked about this passage earlier. He's like, hey, I got one on the wall. You want to bring it down? No. I don't want to carry all that weight. Plus, he's a Texan. He's got to have something doing with cows in his office, I guess. But it's this, it's this double thing, right? And, it, and it, you, you put two oxen or two big beasts side by side, and you put that around them, and, and it's so that they can pull weight together. Same kind of thing in, in the ancient world. Jesus is saying, my yoke is my calling for you. I have a direction that I want to point you. you know, con contrary to what you've heard of so many graduation speeches, you are not the master of your own destiny. And if you act like you are, you're going to freaking jack it up. You're going to mess up your life. So put my yoke on you. I've got a direction for you. I've got accomplishments that are yours to fulfill. Become my disciple. And that starts with this. Come to me. Now, i got to tell you, that sounds nuts in this context. His biggest publicist to date is in prison, about to be killed. Jesus is doing nothing to get him out. And he's telling the rest of us, come to me. That's gutsy. you got to have some real self-confidence. If you're going to allow one of your followers to languish in prison and tell everybody else, hey, you, you want to do that? Come follow me. Come do this. Be like John. Follow me to the end. But, it, but it's not crazy. It's liberating. It's a gracious invitation. You know, how does that apply to, to, um, to anxiety? Well, it, so often in some even harmful church cultures, people with anxiety are told, you know, if you just prayed harder, you know, if you just read the Bible more, I mean, there's got to be something you're doing wrong. Go figure it out. If you just do this, even well-meaning people, well, what you just need to do is, hey, if you're suffering from bona fide anxiety, the next time somebody, even if your brother and sister in this church looks at you and goes, what you need to do is remind them that you have Pastor Joel's permission to look back at them and go, I love you. Start it with I love you. I love you, but what you need to do is shut up. Okay? But, because here's, here's the thing. Like, well, this is what, it's all based in this. Well, if you do this, if you do that, if you, if you figure out what sin that is holding you back, you'd be less anxious. That's legalism. That's a false gospel because it tells you there's a way for you to work yourself out of the anxiety. Jesus' statement here just says, come to me. This is one of grace. And grace reminds us that the thing to do isn't to try harder like a little trying to wash the car, you don't work harder. You give the sponge to dad. That's what you do. I'm not capable of this. I can't control this. I've got to hand this over. And so Jesus says, when you're in a situation like my cousin was, difficulty surrounds you of any sort and kind, I will be your place of refuge. I will be your source of calm. Come to me. 
Let me put my yoke on you. You stop trying to get that back, make this work, put everything together. Just just stop it. I got a yoke. Let me define your purpose and your trajectory. I made you. Trust me, I know better. Let me give it to you and learn from me. Learn from me. Be my disciple in that context. And if you'll do that, there are two promises. Here's the first one. I will give you rest. Y'all need some of that? Who's already been to one too many Christmas events and the only thing you got left is family? And, 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 you, like you, and some of you don't hold your hands up because your family might be in here for all I know. And you're like, man, they're saving the worst for last. All that drama. It's coming, man. It's just like emotional energy through the ceiling. I will give you rest. Literally, I will cause you to experience rest that rejuvenates. You ever been at a stage of life, maybe it was a medical problem, maybe it was a moment of high stress, a season of life where it just wasn't, you just, you were tired all the time? I mean, you could go to bed for 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. You get up, you're still tired. That's what most of us think. When we're tired, we think, of course, when, when you're physically tired, the, the antidote to that is sleep. When you're emotionally tired, sleep won't fix that. A vacation won't fix that. If you're one of those people that you're, you're an escapist, right, and, and life is hard, so you run to Disney or you run to Jamaica or you run to this place or you run to that place. You're going to try to, what do you, even, and if you look at yourself, nothing wrong with going to any of those places. Don't expect me to go to some of those places with you because I ain't going. But there's no sin. There's no sin in that. Go enjoy it. I'm talking about doing it as a matter of escapism. And then you get back, and for some of you, you even did it with Visa's money. So the only thing waiting on you when you get home is credit card bills. And on top of that, you're still tired. And why can't I fix this? It's because rest of the sort that most of us need, we're not going to get from mere sleep. And Jesus knows the difference between just going to sleep and getting real rest. He knows that, all right? So, so if there's another group I'm talking to and you're, I don't know, lazy, you get up at the crack of noon, working 20 hours a week, think it's a full-time job, and you read this and you go, oh, thank God, I need to take a nap. No, that's not what this means. That's not what this means. Not I'll be, I'll be rested by sleep but I'll be rested to the point of revival. I'll be ready. Jesus said, I'm not just going to, he doesn't say, come to me weary and heavy laden and I will put you to sleep. He says, I will give you rest. That's something very, very different. Very different. And here's the, here's the second promise. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dane Ortland puts it this way. He says, what, what helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need, which means I, I don't have to live with internal angst. Jesus says, mine can be a yoke that, that lightens your load instead of increasing it. I will be the source from which your spirit is revived. Now, how can he make a promise like that? I mean, after all, his cousin's in prison. He ain't doing nothing to get him out. Well, that, 
That's where this one personal revelation makes all the difference in the world. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Charles Spurgeon observed that in all 89 chapters of all four Gospels, there's only one place where Jesus explicitly and graphically, in an almost unrated way, just opens up his heart to us. And it's right here. It's where he allows us to see. Because the most vulnerable thing you can do is to open up your heart to somebody, isn't it? It's, it's hard even if you're willing to do it. And it's, it's almost impossible to describe that experience to a third party. I mean, I, I've been married to this woman over here for coming on 29 years, and there's all kinds of things she knows about me. There's things that I hope she never tells you about me. There's things she's already told you that I wish she wouldn't have about me. You know why? Because she knows. She knows me. She knows my heart. And, and here's the thing. She can express really quickly, which is why I'm thankful because I'd be so lost. I got all the Christmas presents bought that are dad's responsibility. None of that would have happened without this miracle called the Amazon wish list. It's awesome, I'm telling you. All right? But that's her. Like she could get that, she gets that stuff in her head and she it stays there. I don't know how she does that. And, and with regard to her husband, she can tell you, I mean, she she can tell you my height and weight, probably. She can tell you about all my habits, the ones that she appreciates and the ones that for the last 20, 29 years she wishes to the good Lord that I would break. She can tell you about my, my educational experience because she went with me through that whole process. She can tell you who my favorite sports teams are and how I'm feeling based on who won yesterday. Still a proud shepherd ram. Right. She can tell you my Enneagram score, my Myers-Briggs type indicator, my disc profile, all that stuff. But how can she possibly communicate to you uh, just one like half a second knowing glance across a dinner table at her or her back at me? I, how could either of us describe to any of you a single look that lasts less than a second that contains 29 years of marriage over 30 years of being a couple, over 35 years of knowing and appreciating each other. It, friendship, thousands of conversations embodied in a look. That, that's a heart communication. You know what I'm saying? If you're married and you've got that kind of relationship, God willing, with your spouse, and that you know what I'm talking about, it's just that one look. That's the communication of one's heart toward another. Look at verse 29. Because your creator, I mean the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, just did that for you. He just looked across the look at, and he, and he says here, I am gentle. That's the word for meek. So in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. He said, I'm, I'm gentle. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean he's a hippie. It doesn't mean you can trifle with him. It doesn't mean you can treat him like your prom date. Okay? 
He's Lord. He is king. Sometimes we get these false dichotomies that the God of the Old Testament was really angry and ticked off and just kind of a grumpy old guy. But Jesus is a total sweetheart who would never hurt anybody. And you haven't read enough of either the Old or the New Testament, right? Because you get to the Old Testament, you even see like motherly language of God coming around and loving his children and, and the passion that he has, for, particularly for his people Israel. And then you get to the New Testament conversely, and if you read it honestly, you go, that gum, Jesus will kill you. So when he reveals his heart to you and me and says, I am gentle, you can come to him knowing he's not trigger happy. He's not reactionary. His, his chief publicist is, publicist is in prison asking if he's really the real deal, and it doesn't faze him that John asks that question. I love my cousin. I love him. He's not reactionary. He, he's, he's not harsh. Jesus is not and will never be exasperated by your doubts, your fears, your troubles. Come to me. I'm gentle and I am lowly of heart. That means he's intentionally accessible. It's the very thing we celebrate at Christmas time. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And I, he condescended to be with us. And he still does. He still does. Whatever's happening in your life right now, there is a place of calm. And it's not located in getting normal back or in controlling something that you're worried about. It is located in a person, and that person is a sovereign God who is in control every, of everything and whose reflexive posture that is just as natural and irreversible as your own eye color is one of accessibility toward anybody who comes to him. If you're in prison, even if you deserve to be there, he says, come to me. If you're in rehab, he says, come to me. If you're fighting chronic illness, he says, come to me. If it feels like doubt is just assailing you because of one thing right after another just coming and you wonder, will there ever be the kind of peace I, I at least thought I knew an era ago? There's one thing right after another. When's it ever going to end? Jesus says to you today, my heart is gentle and lowly. Come and sit in this non-anxious presence. Soak in anyway, See, see that, that's the big thing. You're not the non-anxious presence, and neither am I. It's him. But just as every victory in my life is ultimately his, so is my non-anxiety. It's his. And all of this, by the way, in reaction to his cousin sitting in a cell about to get his head chopped off. What kind of situation are you sitting in right now? There's a country song that came out about five years ago. And one of the lines of the lyric goes something like this. Turn on the news, you'd think the world ain't got a prayer. But if you'll turn it off and look around, which was the writer's way of saying, you know what, if you'll just stop for a minute, don't get myopically sucked into all the bad stuff that's happening in the world. Take a wider look. Because no matter what your circumstance, if you belong to Jesus, there's a greater reality and an unseen kingdom. And at the center of it all, there is a loving Savior opening his heart to you. Not just inviting you into the space, but into his own heart. And saying there's a place of calm, a place of rest, a place to be revived, and a place where you can 
through me, spread this further. Esau Macaulay is a New Testament professor at Wheaton. And his reaction to this passage is this. We, we have to talk about the joy. We can't fight the whole world every moment. You don't have to take on every cause, every hurt, every injustice. You don't have to shoulder every burden. In fact, you know what the gospel says? That by trusting in Christ and his substitutionary death and bodily resurrection from your, for your sin, you don't even have to answer to God for your own sin. So why would you need to carry the burden of anything else? The Savior calls you to call. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in the midst of a world that not only seems to spin out of control emotionally, but seems to make money off of it, seems to see it as a virtue now to, to, to stoke our anxieties and our anger and our outrage and our fear and all those things that, that are not of you. But you say very simply, very calmly, come to me. And that you promise rest and rejuvenation. And I imagine there are people in front of me, that even though they got a good night's sleep last night, and physically things are probably fine, but emotionally and spiritually they are exhausted. And I, who have spent the last 40 minutes roughly talking to them, am powerless to do anything about that and to help them. You have promised to give them rest. Lord Jesus, would you do that today by the power of your spirit? And may they respond to that gracious, loving invitation. That vulnerable expression of yourself as you allow us to peer inside your own person. I am gentle. I am lowly of heart. I'm not trigger happy. I'm not going to react. I'm, I'm not going to be harsh. Come to me. And we would see men and women and boys and girls do exactly that and experience internally, whatever happens with their lives externally, that internally they would experience a peace that's beyond all human understanding that, as Paul said, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Father, because you promise it, I ask for it today on behalf of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.